1: Today's episode is sponsored by Book Riot Deals, our daily roundup of the best books on sale. Every morning, our editors scour the internet to find the very best books on sale from as many genres as possible. We find bestsellers and prize winners, great book club reads, and under the radar staff favorites we'd love more people to know about. There's YA, middle grade, adult fiction, nonfiction, and more. Go to bookriot.com/deals to check out our finds of the day and to sign up for our newsletter. We'll send the day's picks straight to your inbox. That's bookriot.com/deals. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow writer Kim Yukara. We're recording on Saturday, April 10th. Hello, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Um, I'm, oh gosh, you know what? I was about to, like, launch into some, like, 1890s bored woman at home talking <laughs> about my health. which primarily is a stuffy nose. And I was like, no one wants to hear that. I don't know why that was the first thing that came to mind. But anyway,
0: I'm fine. How are you? (laughs) You know, I'm good. I'm trying to fend off advances from my cat who is, like, stalking around my desk area trying to climb on my lap. She does this thing where she, like, sits nearby very... Very still, and then like sneakily sticks her little paw out inch by inch by inch, <laughs> as if like I won't see her because she's moving so slowly, <laughs> but like obviously I can because she's right there, and so now, like my desk is sort of an owl sh- set up, so she's right by my left elbow, like trying to climb onto my lap from <laughs> that area without knocking over my tea or my water, and also like not hitting the podcast. <sighs> It's just, like, cat, come on. So, anyway.
1: I'm just picturing a cartoon of, like, a cat with big wide eyes, like, with its paws stretched out, like, staring back at you as you look at it, like, so surprised to be caught.
0: Yeah, it's, like, she does this to the other cat, too, like, when she's trying to, like, sneak around the house and get away from him because he's chasing her. She's like, if I move slowly enough, (laughs) no one can see me. (laughs) But, like, everyone can. And you're not fooling anyone.
1: Oh, my gosh. Today is my cat's, both of them, their birthday, like their first birthday. (laughs) And because it's quarantine, my wife and I are really excited about it because it's like something different. Mm -hmm. And so we bought them presents. Nice. Yeah. I mean, it's their first. I'm not saying we'll do this every time. (laughs) But it's their first birthday. We got them when they were like six months old. So like, it's been, I don't know. I want, we we want to celebrate them. They don't, they don't know anything because they're cats, but we got them some stuff. So I'm excited about that. That's amazing.
0: I expect to see a lot of pictures on Instagram of your cat's birthday party.
1: Oh, I've already started documenting the day. We should have bought party hats. Shoot. Oh, that would have been good.
0: Yeah. Our cats will not wear party hats, but you can wear party hats.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, like the humans celebrating <laughs> definitely yes. wear party hats. Very true. Very true.
0: Speaking of upcoming exciting days, there are two that I wanted to mention for listeners on the podcast coming up on Saturday, April 24th, is actually two very exciting events that I look forward to every year. And I'm like excited and also sad that they're on the same day because. Because. So the first one is Dewey's 24-Hour Readathon, which is an opportunity to set aside all of your responsibilities for a day and read as much as you can. Um, I have never successfully read for a full 24 hours in 24 hours, but I like the excuse to like only read books for a single day. So that is Saturday, April 24th. And then the other awesome thing that's happening that day is that it's Independent Bookstore Day. So you get to celebrate all the indie bookstores in your life. And depending on what quarantine and COVID looks like for you, you might actually get to, like, go to indie bookstores and buy books. So Jenny, my sister, and I are trying to figure out how we can both read-a-thon and go to independent bookstores on Independent Bookstore Day, Saturday, April 24th. So I will report back in the future.
1: That's very exciting. I did not realize that we already had another readathon coming up. Yeah, yep. So that's great because I feel like I've been in a little bit of a reading slump where I've just been like, "What if instead I watch Star Trek?" (laughs) I've
0: been going in fits and spurts. I will get on like a kick of reading like one kind of thing, and I'll read a couple of books in that thing, and then I can't like find the third book in that thing, and so then I try to switch gears, and it's a little hard and. But it feels like my reading is definitely on the upswing compared to how it has been.
1: Well, that's good. Yeah. With the reading fun segue, this is <laughs> the most natural of all things. Let's get into our first sponsor. So this is Why We Swim by Bonnie Tsui, now in paperback from Algonquin Books. This is, first of all, I, I can't tell you the number of people who I've seen read this book and then be like, I love this so much. It is an immersive, unforgettable, and eye-opening perspective on swimming, but also on human behavior. Uh, Why We Swim was one of the best books of 2020, and uh, the paperback version, so it's easier to fit in your bag. Um, So it's (laughs) propelled by stories of Olympic champions, modern-day Japanese samurai swimmers, and an Icelandic fisherman who survives six hours in a wintry sea. That sounds horrifying. Author swimmer, Bonnie Tsui dives into the deep herself do you get it from the san francisco bay to the south china sea investigating why water despite its dangers seduces us again and again i think when we originally talked about this book i got into that theory that humans evolved from the sea (laughs) 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 i'm sorry maybe it's real and that's why we have like little like almost webbing between our fingers i don't think that's a thing but it could be I don't know anything about uh, anthropology. Um, so again, this is a bestseller, Why We Swim. It's it's mainly if you're interested in water, if you're interested in humans, or just a really good study of a topic. Kim, you liked this book. I did. I read it last year, and it
0: was awesome. It's just like a very soothing book, but also very interesting. She like tells these stories about really interesting people and- Why water is so important to them and why the practice of swimming is really important. And it just feels like one of those sort of immersive (laughs) books. It's really, it's really good. It's really, really good.
1: Uh, Again, that is Why We Swim by Bonnie Tsui, now in paperback from Algonquin Books. Thank you for sponsoring. Yes, excellent.
0: All right, so uh, this week we have a little bit of nonfiction news to share. Um, as a follow-up to something I think we discussed last episode, we talked about um, how Kate McKinnon had dropped out of Hulu's adaptation of uh, the Theranos story. She was no longer going to play Elizabeth Holmes, but we didn't know who was going to replace her. Joe Otterson from Variety has an article that reports Amanda Seafried is going to replace her. I'm just trying to think of what other things she has been in, and I'm totally drawing a blank
1: she was Amanda Seyfried she was in Mamma Mia she was in Mean Girls yes
0: thank you Mamma Mia and Mean Girls so she's gonna play uh, Elizabeth Holmes in the dropout which I think will be very fun I think she she has really big eyes <laughs> and that's one thing I always notice about Elizabeth Holmes is like she has these sort of like big gazing eyes and I feel like that's a big part of like the way her face looks so I I think that will be effective So, yeah, uh, that'll be interesting. There's no information in the article really about, like, when we can expect to see the adaptation, but hopefully sooner rather than later because, boy, I'm excited about that one.
1: I think it's great casting. Yeah, agreed.
0: And then uh, the second one I wanted to bring is just a really quick mention of a... I think we've talked before about, like, Trump administration officials and whether they're going to get book deals or not. And there was a push early after the inauguration in publishing in some circles to say, like, please don't give these people books or money. But I don't think that that was going to stick Uh, and it turns out that it uh, has not so we'll link to an article by rachel deal from publishers weekly and it is about how uh, former vice president mike pence has sold his autobiography and a second book to simon and schuster for a bunch of money so the the first one his untitled autobiography will tell the story of pence's faith and public service covering his trajectory from columbus indiana to his time as the second highest ranking official in the trump administration That book is scheduled for a 2023 publication, and they haven't talked about what the second book in the deal will be. We were talking before the show, and the only thing I really have to say about this is, like, he is the second to last person that I am interested in reading a book from. So we'll see how that goes.
1: I mean, I'm willing to say that he's a misogynist, and that's gross. I don't want to read his book (laughs) (laughs) or have it published. Correct. Yeah. I mean, there's political beliefs, and then there's I'm not going to meet yeah. with a woman alone who's not my wife. Indeed, indeed. Okay. You have a related article to share. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My related article is uh entitled Why Would Anyone Pay Andrew Cuomo $4 million for a book, <laughs> which I sent this to Kim on Twitter because we chat outside this podcast. And I was like this looks really interesting, mainly because the whole article is saying that books by politicians sell badly. No one really talks about them in perpetuity, right? It's not like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, that thing, that pub- like politician memoir from like six years ago is <laughs> it's really just still so relevant. Mm-hmm. But the publishing industry spends a ton of money. Like you get huge advances. They don't make the money back. So it's, it's confusing. Mm-hmm. We'll link to that in the show notes if you want to get more into it. But basically, maybe we shouldn't have political memoirs. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. It's a super interesting argument, right? Because, like, a ton of people will write – politicians will write a memoir sort of for a variety of reasons, but often, like, I think in support of, like, a future political campaign. And so they, like – and those are – I find them not interesting. Yeah. Because they, like, will never say anything even potentially controversial because they know that X number of years from now when they're running for something, like, people are going to come back and be like, oh, in your book you said this. So they're boring, so – but I always assumed that, like, people bought them because why else would publishers still continue to pay a bunch of money to make them? And it's fascinating that they don't.
1: We Yeah, we should probably clarify that when we're talking about political memoirs, we're not talking about, like, post-political career memoirs, yes. which I yeah, do yeah. believe sell very well, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. depending
1: on the person. But just people who, yeah, who either have just – are, like, thinking of running for something or, like, Pete Buttigieg, like, his whole thing – Mm -hmm. I I see that in a lot of thrift stores now. Like, (laughs) like a lot of people bought it. But it's the same with all of these, that, like, for a second, like, people were kind of interested, and then it was like, never mind.
0: Yeah, they don't have shelf life in the same way that, like, a post-political career book might or does often. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that was a really great article. I'm glad you shared it. So with that, we will jump into our our first main segment, which is new nonfiction books that are out soon or have come out that we are excited to read or tell you about. Uh, and so my first pick is a memoir called My Broken Language, a Memoir by Chiara Alegria Hoodies. Uh, which is coming out April sixth from One World, uh, and her name may not may or may not be familiar, but she has a really impressive resume coming into this book. Um, she helped write the book or the like the story of the musical in the Heights. She was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for that project, and then she uh, eventually won a Pulitzer Prize for drama for a different play that she wrote. And so she has this very impressive um, background in drama that she's bringing to this memoir and so my broken language is a coming-of-age story about her life growing up as a mixed-race kid in an ailing Philadelphia borough surrounded by this sprawling Puerto Rican family and so uh, the book opens when her her parents decide to move from North Philadelphia this na- their neighborhood to this farm outside the city because they both wanted to try and get away from that a little bit and it's about kind of what that does to her family what it does to her connection to her um, Puerto Rican family that still lives in philadelphia and kind of goes from there so a lot of the book is about how she learned to balance her spanish-speaking family with also like her english-speaking community her mother's spiritual practices and her father's complete rejection of religion and the tension that that created between her parents and then in her relationships with her parents There's a lot in it about family, her connections to her family, both her immediate family and then her broader sprawling family in Philadelphia. Uh, The women in that family in particular, the stories that they shared and told, the power of stories to shape lives and how we like understand ourselves in our own stories. There's a lot in the book about intergenerational trauma, addiction, grief, relationships. One review I looked at from book page called it joyful, righteous, indignant, self-assured, and exuberant, which feels exactly right for the part that I've read. Like it's It's so, so good. She is a beautiful writer, as you would expect from someone who's won a Pulitzer Prize for her work. It's not poetic exactly, but draws you in from the moment. And she does a really good job of sort of using her perspective that she had at the time of the stories that she's telling, but also some of the perspective she brings to it later. I thought the parts about language and the way that speaking multiple languages, English, Spanish, and then kind of a mix of Spanglish in various areas of her life affects how she sees the world and how she tells her stories. I just think it was really beautiful. And if you need someone besides me to tell you that it is excellent, the book also has a blurb from Lynn manuel Miranda, which i love uh which says that she is in her own league her sentences will take your breath away how lucky we are to have her telling her stories and man if you can i mean i know they're friends because they worked on in the heights together but that's a very excellent endorsement i think so that is my broken language
1: and memoir by Chiara Allegria Houdis. my gosh can we get really quickly into review ethics <laughs> which i promise relates so I was looking at this book because I was psyched about it. And on Amazon, it had one one-star review. Like that was it because it's a new book, right? Mm-hmm. So like someone had like gotten an advanced copy and read it. They didn't like it. And they they left like a pretty articulate review. So, you know, it wasn't just someone who was like, boo, you know, one star. Mm-hmm. But that being said, it sounded like it just wasn't to their taste. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, Ethically. <laughs> If it's a new book coming out, there are no other reviews. If it just didn't like jive with you if you weren't feeling it, <laughs> like I don't personally like this, you wait to leave your one star because then the only thing that you see when you go to it is that it has one star,
0: yeah, I saw that too. It's super weird. and i I feel like I've seen this book a lot around like the book review circles and people that I follow. So I'm really surprised that it doesn't have more on like Amazon because. I don't know. I'm I'm very surprised to hear that though, because I this book feels like it's been sort of everywhere among the like people I follow on social media and the book review outlets that I check in with. So weird. I'm just
1: saying. Agreed. Agreed. (laughs) Okay, good. Anyway, um, my next book is about toilets. So (laughs) it is Pipe Dreams, the Urgent Global Quest to Transform the Toilet by Chelsea Wald. It's out April 6th from Avid Reader Press. I was very excited to see this title. Because there's just so many things in life where we just take them for granted. We don't know how they work. We don't know if maybe they could be better. And sometimes people are like, you know what? I'm gonna look into that. And that's what Chelsea Wald does here. So uh, she's a science journalist. She decided to on a on a trip where she had to use kind of an unconventional toilet. She was like, you know what? Uh, I'm interested in how this works. I'm gonna start looking into it. So. The toilet as we currently use it in, I think, a lot of the Western world uh, has not been updated for quite some time. And we kind of are like, oh, it's probably fine. But no, (laughs) it's not. It, It wastes a lot of products. It wastes a lot of water. There are ways that we could be using the whole like, what is it like sanitation process? I don't know the euphemism for it or like the process of toiletry. But uh, the way we could we could be using it in a much more effective, efficient way, which I mm-hmm. think is, of course, of prime concern right now, since we're talking so much about climate change and our impact on the environment. And then she also talks about the number of people in the world, not to I mean, and also America, who just are using either like uh, sanitation systems that either like go directly into waterways or like just it kind of like a way where we can take for granted and be like oh, well, everyone has, has like, the toilet figured out, and that's not true. So there was just a lot that she gets into about, she goes into the history of how people have dealt with waste going back, like, thousands of years, and how we arrived at our present system, what the, like, slight changes were, which was fascinating, like when we got the S-bend or whatever in the, <laughs> in the toilet, which was, like, supposed to, like, help with odor. It was all just really interesting and and has made me <laughs> think about my toilet a whole new way. And what we can do, again, to to make it a better system, which is a thing people feel awkward talking about, but it's extremely important. So, Mm -hmm. okay, again, that is Pipe Dreams, The Urgent Global Quest to Transform the Toilet by Chelsea Wald. That sounds fascinating, and... I wouldn't have thought that I
0: was, like, super interested in understanding toilets more, but I am now that you talked about it. And also, um, my sister and I have been watching The Great Pottery Throwdown on HBO Max, which is basically like the Great British Baking Show except with pottery. And one of the challenges that they do, like, late in, I think, all of the seasons that we've watched so far is they have the potters make a toilet, like, hand-build a toilet, which is bananas uh, watching them do it because I had no idea how complicated it was. And so now I'm doubly interested
1: in this oh my gosh. because of my TV watching. It's like in uh, my physics class in college, they told us how a photocopier works. And I was like, who would even think to do that? Like, there mm-hmm. are so many steps that it has to go through. And it's just, it's the same thing with the toilet. Toilet, photocopier, same thing. That's right. <laughs> Fascinating. What we're what we're telling you on this nonfiction podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! All right, my next pick is called "Subtract: The Untapped Science of Less" by Lady Claps, which comes out April thirteenth from Flatiron Books. And um, this one is kind of Malcolm Gladwell esque in that it takes a theory and then spins it out into a bunch of different areas of life sometimes persuasively, and then sometimes where I'm like, yeah, I don't know if that totally works. But I think what makes it different is that Klotz is a research scientist, and so he brings a lot of his own personal research into the book, and so it feels a lot more personal research-driven than Gladwell's books sometimes do. So the basic question of this book is, why don't humans subtract? And so, like, there's a lot of talk about minimalism and, uh, like, in corporates, we talk about stop doings, simplifying. I think, like, he mentions in the opening of the book, like, COVID has really been an opportunity for humans to see, like, what does less really look like? And and so he looks at, like, we talk about doing all these things, but experiments and science show is that choosing to subtract is not usually a human instinct or our first choice. And so he, in the book, works with scientists across various disciplines to test whether that's actually true, like whether that theory bears out, and then what what does it mean that humans are inclination, despite like talking a lot about minimalism, our inclination to solve problems or move forward in any way is always to add rather than subtract? And so after it kind of opens with those experiments and establishing that like that's a valid question to ask, the rest of the book looks at trying to explain why we don't think about subtraction versus by looking at like our biology, our history of civilization, how societies have been created. Uh, looks at design and the idea of addition versus subtraction, economics and kind of all of those different ways. And then he tries to go into how we can train our thinking to stop always assuming more is the answer and start thinking about how less and subtraction could be the answer. So to give you an idea of kind of the scope of the book, uh, it opens with basically three examples. A woman who tries to remove a freeway in San Francisco and how difficult that was until it was literally destroyed by an earthquake and then they were able to finally remove it. Uh, A union organizer who, as part of uh, efforts to try and stop a, a protest apartheid in South Africa just refuses to unload a cargo ship and how that refusal to do work helps in San Francisco, helps spark a global movement. And then a social scientist who takes a kind of a prevailing theory about how society works, trims it down, and then comes to a more nuanced and accurate idea. And so that's kind of, I think, I like those examples because they show kind of the scope that the book is trying to look at all through the lens of why don't we subtract things and why is it so hard for us to think of subtraction. And I think it's really fascinating. I, I feel like people are either like, yay, Malcolm Gladwell or boo, Malcolm Gladwell. And I think this one kind of takes what's good about Malcolm Gladwell, which is like sort of a wide ranging approach to a question and brings in a lot of science and um, statistics to bear that out. And so I like that part of the book. And I think it's it's really interesting so far. So that is Subtract the Untapped Science of Less by Leidy Klotz.
1: Oh my gosh, that sounds so good. Yeah, it's really interesting. I immediately like added that to my library queue. That's fantastic. Okay. I say this as someone who has a really hard time getting rid of things. (laughs) It's hard. (laughs) Just someone tell me why. So I really love young adult nonfiction. Uh, Got a real special place in my heart for it. Just there's like, there's so much to learn about. And sometimes you just can't do like a 350 page in-depth breakdown of it and the ya version will give you like a really good overview and like honestly probably all that you need Mm because you've got other stuff going on in your life but um this felt uh this this is a new release and it it uh well obviously we're in the new release section but it also felt really pertinent it is uh from a whisper to a rallying cry the killing of vincent chin and the trial that galvanized the asian american movement by paula yu This focuses on uh, Michigan, specifically Detroit, and the auto industry in the 1980s. Uh, In 1982, uh, this was when – so, you know, Michigan and Detroit had been, like, the car capital. Like, this was, like, everywhere all of the cars were made and, like, America, yay, muscle cars. Anyway, this is my understanding because I don't have a (laughs) (laughs) – it's probably a little more subtle than that. Anyway – But in the 1980s, Japanese car companies were taking, like, I think at least a quarter of the business away. So some auto factories were shutting down in Detroit, and you had all these people who were unemployed. So there was a lot of anti-Asian American sentiment specifically focused there. Like, I would say nationwide, but specifically in Detroit. Um, So this Chinese American man, Vincent Chin, he was at his bachelor party at a bar and basically got harassed by an auto worker and his stepson there was a fight they ended up going outside so they got kicked out of the bar and the auto worker who's like a manager i think at a at one of the factories he ends up beating vincent chin to death which i won't get into more details the book does it's like it's i mean so like warning for violence like i was kind of shocked but also, it's kind of like this is a thing that happened, and it was horrible. So he uh, he ended up dying. I think it was like six days before his wedding. is incredibly huh. tragic. He was the only son of his father had recently died, so his mom had to deal with this. But when the auto worker and his stepson went to trial, they pled guilty to manslaughter. They got a three thousand dollar fine and three years probation. Jeez. Yeah. So there were protests that followed, which led to a federal civil rights trial, which was the first involving a crime against an Asian American. And it started uh, from the subtitle It started what came to be known as the Asian American movement. So um, I I mean, I really recommend this book, I did not know anything about uh, the murder of Vincent Chin. And it was just it gave me a lot of context for something that gosh, 1980, it's like 40 years ago was when that happened so again that is from a whisper to a rallying cry the killing of vincent chin and the trial that galvanized the asian american movement by paula Yu.
0: that is fascinating and sadly timely for many different reasons so yeah that is an awesome pick that sounds fascinating All right, so before we move on, I have two just, like, really quick mentions of books that have come out recently that I haven't had a chance to read yet but I think are perhaps relevant to our listeners. Um, The first one comes out April 13th. It's called Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty by Patrick Rodden O'Keefe. He wrote a book last year, Say Nothing, about kind of the troubles in Ireland – This book, Empire of Pain, is about the Sackler dynasty who have made their fortune selling opioids and Oxycontin. Um, And so he does a deep dive into that family and everything that has happened with the opioid crisis. So I think that is, again, like sadly timely. Um, I was not able to get a galley probably because it's expected to be a huge book and they're not going to approve a galley for a small potatoes uh, nonfiction podcast. But uh, it looks really good to me. And then the second one is called Children Under Fire, An American Crisis by John Woodrow Cox, which came out March 30th. This is a book about the devastating effects of gun violence on children and a call to action about it. And I started reading this one, and it was just too hard for me to read right now. Um, It's very well done. The reporting is clearly very deep, and he, like, spends a lot of time talking to children and their families who have been affected by gun violence. I just... I could, personally couldn't do it right now, but I think that it's a good book, and I'm, I'm hoping to eventually come back to it. So quick mention to round out new nonfiction. Uh, so with that, we will jump into our second sponsor. Uh, this week's episode is sponsored by Emporia State University's School of Library and Information Management. The Masters of Library Science program at Emporia State University is an ALA accredited program that offers the flexibility of online classes while also giving a community of peers to build a professional network. Through combination of instruction, students are able to form deep connections to the coursework, professors, and other students, and practicing professionals in libraries. ESU offers a quick and affordable way to earn your MLS with most students completing their degree in two years, even while working a full-time job. Uh, the program has small class sizes, a max of thirty people in each course, and it is affordable with scholarships available. So, to learn more, you can visit their website at www.emporia.edu/slim. All right. So, uh, this week for our themed section, since it's just past Easter, we thought it would be interesting to do a dive into some religious memoirs. So, uh, not just Christian religious memoirs, but uh, religious memoirs kind of across the spectrum, since it's an interesting time for that. So I feel like I've been talking for a really long time. So I'm going to let you go first this time, Alice.
1: I was prepped for that.
0: Good. Okay.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, we we were debating whether we were going to do, like, cult memoirs, because those mm-hmm. are fun, or religious memoirs, and we decided to leave it, like, more open. Also, I feel like cult kind of necessarily carries this um, judgy tone, maybe. So mm-hmm. we wanted to leave that open a little bit. So my first pick is Unfollow, a memoir of loving and leaving the Westboro Baptist Church by Megan Phelps Roper. I talked about this when it was a new release, and Mm -hmm. I really liked it. I thought her writing was great. And uh, I think she does a good job of presenting a nuanced approach to the Westboro Baptist Church, which is not a nuanced organization. So that feels like an accomplishment. So she is the granddaughter of the church founder, Fred Phelps, and grew up in this really tight community, right? Like they all lived like basically in each other's backyards and would only like hang out with each other. And she had to sort of Grow up as a as a child, she was attending these Westboro Baptist protests. For those who are unaware, the Westboro Baptist Church will do things like, you know, protest at uh soldier funerals and Mm -hmm. just say, like, you know, that's great that they're dead. Like it's a lot of horrifying stuff that no one else is on board with, (laughs) as far as I'm aware. So she kind of like gives in, she gives insight into why, right? Like, why was this happening? What were they thinking? And uh, what was being said within their like enclave. And what happened was she was put in charge of their social media and was like the church's voice on Twitter and ended up getting into a discussion with this guy who was like asking questions. And he ended up like she ends up leaving the church because of these conversations and they get married. It's like it's like a story where you're like, what? (laughs) That took a twist. Mm-hmm. but she's i think she's very thoughtful about the press she talks about how painful it was leaving her family because again this is like not only were they very close but she didn't really have you know another network and um she and her sister both left at the same time but it was just i i really liked it and i just again the 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 accomplishment of writing a book about such a controversial topic as westboro baptist and making it seem like you could kind of understand where she was coming from with her sympathy for her family so again that is unfollow a memoir of loving and leaving the westboro baptist church by megan phelps roper
0: excellent i'm glad you talked about that again i remember when you mentioned it for new books i was like oh man i gotta read that and then obviously i never have because that's the story of my whole life uh but (laughs) (laughs) it still sounds awesome and i think you're right like being able to share that in such a way is really impressive and um, worth reading. So awesome. Uh, my first pick is one that is, I think, straight in my wheelhouse. Uh, and it's called Godland: A Story of Faith, Loss and Renewal in Middle America by Liz Lenz. Uh, it came out a couple of years ago or one year, yeah, in 2019, I think, from Indiana University Press. Uh, and so the book opens in the year 2005 uh, with Liz and her fiance moving down to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She describes herself as a person who's pretty liberal, just a couple of steps from Greenpeace, and her husband is pretty conservative. Uh, And so they live in Cedar Rapids, they join a faith community that ultimately proves to be a bad fit for them because of the way the church treats Liz, particularly. So they work with a couple of other couples to try and make their own church, which does not work. So she shares a little bit about that. But the kind of the rupture of the memoir happens in 2016 when Liz uh, votes for Hillary and her husband votes for Trump. And their marriage, which was already strained and difficult and, like, from the beginning seemed like it was hard that is the thing that kind of breaks it and so they realize their faith and their politics are just not compatible anymore so after her divorce she sets out trying to understand like what faith in middle america actually means and what it is about and how tied in with that how the midwest became this place where like politics talks about the midwest as being normal compared to everywhere else and so The book is kind of a mixture of memoir of her kind of talking about her journey in faith and how it has changed and evolved over time, along with this kind of investigative journalism place looking at faith in the the Midwest, um, why churches are struggling, how people have found or created places of faith in communities that they don't otherwise feel supported, and kind of All of those things and how they're tied up in sort of the Midwestern ethos and approach to the world. So um, she, throughout the book, looks at faith in the United States as, quote, a civil religion deeply connected with Christianity, but also influenced by capitalism, regionalism, and politics, which I think is kind of accurate and interesting. And so she talks a lot in the book about how the Christian faith – is often tied to like the ideas of values and things we think of as Midwestern and how even when things are good, there's this real sense of dread and fatalism, which I totally understand as a person who has grown up in the Midwest. Looks at the role that churches play in small towns and tries to understand, like, as she goes around to these various churches, she hears a lot, like, oh, you know, people are losing their values, or our values are just different. So, like, trying to understand what that actually means. Um, and one thing I really like about the book is that um, Lenz grew up in Texas, but has lived in the Midwest since she was a teenager. And so her memoir and also her reporting brings a really good insider-outsider perspective to the whole thing, which I think is nice because it... I think when you're writing about a group, it's it's interesting to be able to say, like, I am part of this group and here's why we are the way we are. But also I am not a part of this group and this is the parts of it that are hard to understand. So it's it's fascinating. I think it's really interesting. And like I said, right kind of in my wheelhouse of understanding, particularly like the rural Midwest and trying to understand faith and politics and how those things are really tied together in ways that are complicated and potentially unproductive so it's really good i really like it godland a story of faith loss and renewal in middle america by liz lens
1: churches are third spaces <laughs> mm-hmm. Just, yeah but well wait they were our third space they are declining obviously as she says in the book and we also have libraries mm-hmm. i feel like that's it so we need we need another thing someone come up with a new third space yeah i mean
0: that's a lot of what the book is about is how communities when they lose churches, they lose those senses, those places where community happens. And that for many people who were and are still avid churchgoers, like that is some of, in the past anyway, that was some of the only places where they really got community was through their church family. And so faith and community are tied really closely together. And the loss of those things, especially in small towns where there aren't many opportunities are really, it's devastating. And so how do we reconcile kind of that need for community the need and want for faith but also the like toxic politics that can sometimes get embedded in that too it's not a it's not an easy answer in any respect
1: no all right so speaking of no easy answer i don't know if that's actually accurate <laughs> for this but my next pick is beyond belief my secret life inside scientology and my harrowing escape by jenna Cavage hill Jenna Miscavige Hill is the niece of the Church of Scientology's leader, David Miscavige, um, the current leader, I should say, and grew up, you know, uh, deeply embedded in the Church of Scientology. This book, I would say it's not... Known for its beauty of prose, if you will, but if you want to get more into like there, there are a number of books that were written by like kind of outsider reporters that you know are mm-hmm. are very whatever, yeah, which you can read in companion to this. The plus of this book, right, is that she grew up in it, and this is this is again this view. Within the the context of the subject, religious memoirs, where people who grew up either with it or kind of acclimated to it, and it became an intense part of their life and their community and their mindset. So, like, have like seeing like what that is like, uh, I think is is especially fascinating. So she talks about her childhood was was basically she was very alone, she was very isolated. Her parents were part of C org. Which is this inner sanctum, but there was a requirement that families be separated and uh, children over the age of six would be raised communally at locations that were close to Sea Org, which I do not like saying out loud. That's horrifying. Not the idea of communal raising of children, but, you know, cutting them off from their parents, etc. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's just she, there's just a lot of things that it's very unfortunate that are happening and that she is able to highlight Which is really interesting, especially given that recently, I think, Scientology was very under wraps, right? Because they were known as being extremely litigious, still are, but um, more and more has come out about the practices. Many of them that have been highlighted sound, you know, abusive. So especially this like isolating children and keeping people on a boat. So anyway, um, if you're interested in, I feel nervous even talking about this, however, if you're interested in learning more about from an, from an insider perspective about Scientology, then that is beyond belief. My secret life inside Scientology and my harrowing escape by Jenna Miscavige Hill.
0: That sounds like a fascinating pick. I, yeah, you're right. There's been a lot written about Scientology, but often from outsiders, people who are like reporting on it. And I think. Like like with Godland, like sort of the insider-outsider ability to kind of share that is interesting, particularly in religious memoirs when things like faith and understanding can be so hard to – can be so hard to understand if you're not deeply embedded in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That sounds really good. So my last pick is one that I believe I talked about on an International Women's Day episode a few years ago, uh, and that is I Should Have Honor, a Memoir of Hope and Pride in Pakistan by Khalida Brohi. So uh Kalida Brohi grew up in a very small rural village in Pakistan, and she was raised in a culture and a religion that believed in arranged marriage. So her mother was married to her father when she was, I think, nine years old, and Kalida was promised as a bride to a uh, family related to hers through this like very complicated arrangement among these kind of families in the tribe before she was even born she was promised into this marriage but her father was a person who believed in education and so he would not sign the contract and refused to let her be a child bride in this system and in fact she was the first girl in her village to eventually get to go to school and actually pursue her education so in the book she credits her father and those decisions for really helping her become the activist and speaker and prolific person that she is today so The kind of precipitating, I guess, uh, tragedy of the book happens to her 14-year-old cousin who falls in love with a man who she is not promised to in an arranged marriage, and she and this young man run away together. Kalida doesn't really know what has happened to her, but she finds out later that her cousin was murdered by her uncle in an honor killing for falling in love with this man that she wasn't promised to. And that is obviously like a tragedy and a, a... It's a horrifying event for Kalida, who, like, loves her cousin and doesn't understand, like, why this happens. And so she – this incident prompts her to become an activist, and she wants to change the culture of honor killings and try to move – stop them from happening in Pakistan and other places. And so she – because of her education and because of the support of her family, she's able to become an activist fighting for women's rights in rural communities and around the world. And so this book is her memoir of becoming an activist and kind of moving into that role. I liked that she is very honest and open about her failures and challenges and the ways that, like, as—and when she first started her activism, the things she did that just didn't work, that didn't resonate with the people she was trying to persuade and actually, like— made things more just didn't didn't work, and she's really honest about that, and I think that can be hard to do, so I appreciated that about the memoir um she's also talked about kind of the hard times her activism and her work has caused for her family and the way its strained some of her familiar relationships in part because like they're just scared for her safety, like advocating in this very strict society for something that's different so um late in the book, she writes about coming to the United States where she was able to train and meet with other activists and how that plus Falling in love really helped change her perspective on how she wanted to approach her work, but not her ultimate goal to stop honor killings in uh, her communities. And I – it's just such a really impressive memoir. It's – what she's accomplished is amazing. Her sense of self and her ability to write about herself is really amazing. She has such a, a good way of describing and helping put you into the places that she's working. And I just think it's a really incredible memoir. So I highly recommend it. I Should Have Honor, a Memoir of Hope and Pride in Pakistan by Khalida Brohi. Sounds really good. Yeah, it is. So that was a, a few religious memoirs, which we talked about because it's near Easter, but are really good anytime I'd love to hear other recommendations because I know there's a lot of really good ones out there. So with that, we will wrap up the podcast as we normally do by talking about the books that we are reading right now at this very moment. Uh, I am still deep in the audiobook of A Promised Land by Barack Obama. I have three hours and 54 minutes left, which I am wow. trying to finish it before my book club meeting tomorrow. I think audiobook was the way to go on this one for me. Uh, it's Obama has a very soothing voice, so it's soothing to listen to. But also um, what I'm really liking about parts of this is he doesn't like – it's not like Obama unleashed, right? Like he's not saying anything super gossipy or terrible about anyone, but he sort of is a little bit more casual than I – like. he ever got to be as president and so there's some fun moments where he's like this controversy happened and this is what i said at the time but what i really wanted to say was (laughs) something and then you like listen to him to sort of do like this low-key rant about what he really wished that he had been able to say which it's it's just really funny um because like when he was president he never got to do that and it's nice to see like a little bit more humanity, I guess, and frustration coming through, uh, especially given like how um, obstructive Republicans were through most of his uh, administration. So it's it's a very detailed book. He's up to like, I mean, I've only got a few hours left, and he's only at the like, ahead of the 2010 midterm elections. Um, so I know this one is only really going through like, I think is, yeah, I'm not sure how far this is when it's gonna go, but it's the first in a two-parter. So we'll get another 20 hours sometime in the future. But it's good. I I'm really liking it. So, Promised Land by Barack Obama. Great on audio.
1: Do you want to know how far it goes because I just wrote about it for the True Story newsletter. <laughs> yes, please tell me how far does it go. It stops right after the killing of Osama bin Laden. Ah, okay. Perfect. Which I think was 2011 or 2012. It was 2011 because I don't think it covers his second his like re-election. Anyway, I am reading Broken in the Best Possible Way by Jenny Lawson. It's her third book. And um, I'm a member of the Fantastic Strangelings Book Club, which Jenny (laughs) Lawson opened an independent bookstore right when the pandemic hit. So she immediately closed it again. It's in San Antonio. And it looks so fun and so cool. And I want to visit it someday. But in the meantime, I was like, when it immediately shut down, she was like, well, we have this book club. And I was like, oh, I'll support her bookstore. And they send you a book every month. And this was her. Obviously, they sent hers this month because um, it was just released. And it's really fun. and It's her talking about how she's weird. <laughs> and So you, whenever <laughs> you read that, it's like, yeah, that's fun and like interesting. and But also, um, I believe it's going to get into some more serious topics because she does um, deal with some mental illness and she, um, I think the book is talking about her treatment of that. So just be aware if you're, you know, interested, but it's, I mean, it's very funny so far and like uh, also open. I'd say funny and open, which is great. So with that, you can find us on social media. I am at it's Alice time and Kim is at Kim the dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink.
0: And so, if you have a few minutes, we would love it if you would take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us more easily. And then you can subscribe so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. So, with that, I'm Kim Yucra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.